A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arse Blog Arsecast right here on arsblog.com. How are you? I hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being with us today. We are talking about Arsenal's 3-1 defeat to West Ham in the EFL slash Carabao Cup. I think it's fair to say that this game, this tournament in particular, is one which... I don't know if people have mixed feelings about it, but certainly when you've got Newcastle coming up at the weekend... There is a clamour to not risk your big players. So the likes of Declan Rice, William Saliba, Bakayo Saka, Gabriel Martinelli, etc., etc., were on the bench. And I think everyone's kind of okay with that. On the other hand, though, it's not nice when you play poorly, when you concede bad goals, defend badly, and you end up going out of the cup to West Ham. There was a, a little bit of a consolation at the end when Martin Odegaard scored, but I think that, if you can call it gloss, I don't know if you can call it gloss at all. I think what it did was make the shit stain slightly less shitty or stainy or both, however you want to put that. And uh, I don't know that Mikel Arteta was too impressed. The pictures during the rounds immediately afterwards where he was um, you know, going over to acknowledge the fans He had a face like thunder on him and in his post-game press conference, this is the first question he was asked by uh, our pal James Bench. Mikel, first of all, your assessment on the game? Yeah, very disappointed. Uh, Obviously, I'm responsible for that. We are out of the cup and um, we wanted to play a very different game and especially we wanted to compete in a game like this where we discussed for 48 hours in a very different way to what we've done. I think every manager, every Every fan can understand a team that doesn't play to its best level sometimes. That happens to the best teams. But we know from experience and TV footage from the Amazon documentary just how much stock Mikel Arteta puts in the way that his players behave on the pitch. You can play badly, but don't be found wanting. If you don't compete, then you're probably going to get an earful of something like this. I don't accept these fucking standards. It's nowhere near, guys. It's fucking shit. And look, there might be people out there who are pleased we're out of the EFL Cup, pleased perhaps that we don't have a trip to Anfield as reward for beating West Ham, particularly when that game is scheduled to take place on Tuesday the 19th of December. And, well, we play Liverpool on Saturday 23rd of December. We would have been going to Anfield twice in a row, one of those quirks of the fixture list that throws himself up every season. Would we really have fancied two games against Liverpool? Maybe as fans, we might say, actually, you know, not the worst thing in the world. We'll have a free week before that game. But I can guarantee you, Mikel Arteta will not be thinking that way. 
And I imagine there were some choice words in the Arsenal dressing room last night and probably today uh, as they reconvene for some training ahead of our trip to Newcastle on Saturday. So let's get on and talk about all the bits and bobs from last night. And with me to do that from the Chronicles of Aguna podcast, BBC Sport London and more, it's Harry Simeu. Hi, Harry. Hi, Andrew. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm you know, coming to terms with, with last night. I'm interested in, you know, how you feel in the cold light of day after a defeat against West Ham in the Carabao Cup. There's this weird thing with this competition now where people can immediately write off any kind of defeat in the like, ah, we never wanted to win that anyway. We've got bigger fish to fry and all the rest of it, which, you know, I think we all get. We all understand that to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, this is a trophy. This is a piece of silverware. It's a trip to Wembley. When Manchester City take it seriously every season, is there any reason why Arsenal shouldn't take it seriously? I'm not saying we didn't, but from a, a fan base perspective, how do you view that? It's a difficult one because I'm, I, I do look at it and think this isn't the priority, right? And if I was to list the competitions that Arsenal are involved in this season in order of priority, this would undoubtedly be at the bottom of the list. But having said that, I think when you see a performance like that, you can't help but be disappointed. You know, we've talked a lot this season about the improvement in terms of the squad depth and the fact that we've been able, you know, to add a few more players and and have better cover in certain areas, at least on paper. And then you watch a load of those players take to the field in a game like last night. And all of a sudden you start to doubt, don't you? And you start to question whether or not this squad is actually as strong as you thought it was maybe at the weekend when Mikel Arteta made a few changes and we, you know, destroyed Sheffield United. So I think that's kind of where I'm at. I feel more disappointed by the performance that I witnessed than the outcome in terms of the fact that we're out of the cup and you look at the draw as well and we would have ended up with a, yeah. another trip to Anfield and, and one of them is enough for me in a season. <laughs> I mean, that is the silver lining, I guess, that people will be grasping and fans certainly will be grasping you know, uh, today. I don't think that's going to be shared by Mikel Arteta in terms of how he viewed this, the sort of culture that he wants to instill at the club, the standards that he talks about all, this, uh, all the time. And what he expects from his players, because I think it was quite interesting, wasn't it, when he uh, when he spoke to the press afterwards? I played a little uh, clip of this before before we began talking, and he used the word compete in a very specific way, which is to say that he felt his team did not compete in the way that he wanted. Um, I think he's going to be feeling quite a lot more upset by this and, you know, woe betide those who fall foul of Mikel Arteta, as we know. But, you know, there's going to be some strong words on the training ground and uh, all the rest of it. I mean, he absolutely viewed this as a trophy for Arsenal to go for this season. And the uh, the idea that you're, you're going to play Liverpool twice in a week, okay, not ideal, far from it. But that's something that you just have to contend with if you're a big team, if you're going for things. And also, it's, it's a, a bridge you cross when you come to it. You don't have to, um, you know, you wouldn't say, well, let's not win this game because we might face Liverpool. Yeah, agreed. You know, I'm just trying to look at the silver lining, trying to make myself feel better <laughs> about it, trying to convince myself that actually the outcome um, isn't as bad as it as it felt last night. I, I agree with you in terms of where we spoke about competing. I think the feeling I got from listening to him speak afterwards was that he thought that he'd done all of his part in terms of warning the players with regards to what they were going to face, that they were going to face a committed side, a physical side at the London Stadium, which you always get from David Moyes' teams, right, in games mm. of this magnitude, regardless of what their forms look like in the build-up. 
And all of a sudden, you know, he sends his players out there. And I think particularly in the second half, you know, we, we just didn't compete physically. We weren't at the races. Um, you know, I, I think he's got to take some responsibility for that, though, in certain areas. Because I think when I looked at that midfield trio that started the game, that my first thought was, we're going to get bullied. We're going to get overrun. We're going to get overpowered. And I understand the need to sort of wrap Declan Rice up in cotton wool. And I understand the fact that with Thomas Partey being out, that's probably even more important. But you just looked at that midfield of Jorginho, who I would argue is a great player in possession, but can be a bit lightweight at times, doesn't have that mobility. Fabio Vieira, the same, you know, really technically gifted. But in terms of the physicality and and the way he can compete in that sense, I think he's, he's lacking a bit. And then Kai Havertz, who I'm still not sure where he's supposed to be playing and how he fits in. So I just looked at the team and I thought, what did he really expect from that? And, um, mm. you know, I guess if he comes away with it think from it thinking, well, they didn't even compete, they didn't do the bare minimum, the non-negotiables, as Mikel Arteta likes to put it, then, you know, you can understand why he was frustrated. Yeah, there are some discussion of individuals that I think we'll come on to. And, and certainly, you know, injuries have played a part and we can talk about those as well. Um, you know, the... The midfield, you know, I didn't think it was overrun until it was, if that makes sense. Uh, and that's certainly a second half thing. But first half, I thought Arsenal were were all right. Not brilliant by any means, but certainly dominant in terms of possession. Had more shots than West Ham. I think West Ham, saw the stat, I think West Ham went in 1-0 up at halftime without having had a shot. Which is, you know, the consequence of the, of the own goal uh, and all the rest of it. But... You know, before the game, and I was talking about this, you know, on the blog and stuff like that, like I didn't want Declan Rice to start this game. I didn't want Bakayo Saka or Gabriel Martinelli or Martin Odegaard. You know, you 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 have to pick a team which has, you know, the 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 overall picture in mind, right? So he was asked before the game how much of uh, this team selection will be informed by Newcastle. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but he said, no, no, nothing. You know, this is a game against West Ham that, mm. that we want to win. But of course, you you have to take that into account when you pick your team. And you have to take into account the fact that you want to give players minutes and you want to give um, fringe players more time on the pitch because you might need them in the Premier League. It's a chance for them to impress, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, how, how do you find the balance between, let's say, making a lot of changes, a lack of fluency, if you might uh, put it that way, and those players coming into the team? Like, it's it's a difficult circle to square, if you like, because that sort of lack of effort, that lack of competitiveness that he, he spoke about clearly at the end of the game you know, it wasn't there in the second half. And for some of these guys, these are the only games that they're starting. So, you know, it's hard to understand how how something like that happens. Yeah, of course. I mean, for me, when I try and, when I assess a game of football, I kind of go with my instinct first. What what do I think I've seen? How have I processed this? And then mm. what I try and do is go away and, and sort of watch it again and, and look at the statistics and look at the metrics and, and try and figure out if, or how close my instinct is to what the actual story was. And sort of when I was thinking about it yesterday, um, you know, I, I sort of sat there sort of shortly after the game and I thought, if I go back to sort of previous podcasts I've done and, and previous work that I've done, one of the things that I always struggled to understand with Mikel Arteta was 
how we decide what the balance was when rotating. So do you make four changes? Do you make five changes? And then if it's only four changes, do you look at the players, the four players, for example, that you feel need the rest most desperately? Do you look at their sort of, you know, their results in terms of their training and all the rest of it and look at it and go, okay, he needs it more than he does. So I'm going to prioritize him being rested. And when you go back to previous seasons, we saw Mikel Arteta pick these kind of like half and half teams. And instantly you saw a lack of cohesion. You saw really poor performances. It's bitten us before in in the Europa League, in the Carabao Cup. And at times we've had enough still to get over the line, but the performances have been a big drop off to what we see on a Saturday and a Sunday. And so last night I kind of looked at it and I thought, well, you've made too many changes here. And I get what you're saying. Like, I totally agree. Like In an ideal world, you don't want to play Declan Rice. You don't want to risk these players in a competition that is so far below in terms of its priority with the Premier League. But at the same time then, what do you expect in terms of the, the level of performance? And then when you go and bring sort of Declan Rice and Tommy Asu on, at around about 60-odd minutes or whatever it was, or just before we conceded the third goal. And then you bring on Saka, Martinelli and Odegaard later on in the game. I'm starting to think, well, hold on a minute. The, the, the game's passed you by, so you didn't want to risk these guys. But now you are. You are taking some sort of risk. And the, the truth is that even with those guys on the pitch, the chances of you turning this around are almost impossible. So I, I'm just... Going back to previous thoughts, I've always felt like Arteta maybe struggled to find that balance between what is the right amount of rotation in comparison to the opponent that you're playing. And last night, away to West Ham, is not a game that you can make that many changes in and expect to just get by, I think. I mean, is it too simplistic to say, though, that these guys are on the fringes, therefore there's going to be a drop-off in performance? I mean, you know... I get there are differences between the players and, you know, Rice versus Jorginho, for example, you know, but at the same time, Jorginho's a very, very experienced player. And I don't think he didn't necessarily too much wrong last night. I, I mean, I think this is what's interesting about this game to me is that nobody really did anything egregiously wrong. There were just moments of, of concentration lapses from players who should know better that cost us goals and, and that were punished. But if you're Mikel Arteta and you're saying, okay, I'm going to make some changes. Um, I'm going to bring in £35 million Fabio Vieira. I'm going to bring in £28 million Leandro Trossard. I'm going to bring in £65 million Kai Havertz or maintain Kai Havertz in the team. You know, that mm. that I think there is an expectation that guys like that should be able to deliver in the context of the kind of football that, that you want to play. And I take your point, you know, relationships and partnerships and all those kinds of things develop uh, over time. But, you know, was he within his rights to expect more from some of those players, despite the fact that perhaps the changes on uh, imbalance the team a bit? Yeah, I think I think you're right to point out relationships. I think that's the key here for me. I think on an individual basis and on an individual level, he's right to expect Havertz to be able to to produce on a night like that. Fabio Vieira the same. Even the likes of Reese Nelson. We could go through the whole team. You know, there's mm. so many of them should be delivering more than they delivered last night. But I think it comes back to that point that you made, which was relationships and balance. Because having Jorginho at the base of your midfield is okay if you've got Declan Rice alongside him, whose extra mobility kind of masks what Jorginho lacks in that department. Mm. And then I think it's okay to have Kai Havertz in a midfield 
if you don't have Fabio Vieira in it. So I think there are a lot of sort of mismatches that we saw last night and that impacted the balance of the team, which then impacts on your style of play and impacts on your ability to cut through. I mean, Reese Nelson is another good example, right? For me, he's a left winger. When he plays on the left wing, he's so much more impactful than he is from the right, but you're putting him on the right. So are you going to get the, the premium level of performance out of him? You know, it's, it's all about that. It's all about that cohesion. And when you don't play with each other week in, week out, one or two of you are coming in, then you can get by with that mm. because they slot into a system where nine out of the 11 players know what they're doing and do it with each other week in, week out. The minute you start making wholesale changes, you have to expect that drop off. And I agree with you. I don't look at anyone and go, you were dreadful last night and you're the reason that we didn't win. I just looked at it as a collective and thought there was no cohesion. There were no relationships. And, and as a consequence of that, our overall level, especially in that second half, went off the side of a cliff. Yeah. So let's talk about the goals that we conceded. The first one, you know, I, I love Ben White as much as the next guy. And there's definitely a foul by uh, Suchek, I think, on Aaron Ramsdale. Um, it was quite funny, wasn't it, when when Ramsdale went to the referee to complain. The referee obviously said something to him. Ramsdale's face was like incredulous. I wonder, was Ramsdale asking, is there VAR? And was told, no, no VAR. I didn't see anything. I think that's a goal that gets disallowed in the Premier League. Um, but without VAR, you know, there's no way. I'm not saying there's no way that the referee could have seen that. There, you know, it's possible that he could have seen that shirt pull. It impeded Aaron Ramsdale and his ability to get to the ball, which I think he might well have done. But Ben White, having made the decision to come and clear that away, I think he got it wrong, you know, and it's um, the consequence. Obviously, was was the own goal. I mean, it's a good ball in from Jared Bowen, wasn't it? The the yeah. flight of that ball was dangerous. But I think, uh, as much as there was a foul on on Ramsdale, I think Ben White needs to, you know, hold his hold his hands up a little bit and say he should have uh, he should have done better with that header. Yeah, completely agree. I'm not sure if he got caught out by a slight change in direction of the ball, um, you know, because he just seemed off balance, didn't mm. he, as he approached it. And as a consequence of that, he couldn't shape his body in a way that meant he was going to clear it away from the goal. And instead, it ended up going towards the goal. Agree with you on the Ramsdale thing. It's definitely a foul. Um, I agree with you that I think that the referee was telling him that there isn't any VAR in play here. And he was taken aback by that because I think... You know, the game has changed with VAR, right? We've got to a point where players are looking for those little things, those little moments. And when they feel those things happening, they kind of stay calm because they know that the VAR mm. should, doesn't always, but should intervene yeah, yeah. Um, and fix these things. And on this occasion, you know, Arsenal obviously have a really, really strong case. But you just see a demonstration of what happens when you go to VAR and then you try and take it away. Mm. You can't, you know, we're there now. We've gone down that road and we need to just fix VAR and make it as best as possible. You can't now have games where it's not in use because you get moments like this and problems like this. Do we understand what the rationale for not having it in this competition is? Is it because there are lower league teams involved earlier on, many more lower league teams, and that technology is not available to some of those clubs? So across the board, they decide we won't have it in this because once you get to, once you get to this period of, of the competition, you know, it, it should be there. 
Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. I think it's to do with the fact that um, that they don't have the facilities or the capabilities in every ground uh, to be able to do that. It isn't in use in the championship and in League One and League Two, um, which means that those grounds are not equipped for it. And so they feel that it would be a disadvantage to those teams if they were to play without it, whereas the Premier League sides, when they're at home, um, obviously have mm. that. But, you know, it, we're going to get to the point where this is going to be be a problem and this is going to be a thing and maybe there's a solution where you still have VAR but just in not a sophisticated a manner so you know they're talking about introducing semi-automated offsides maybe you don't have that in the lower league grounds and you use the lines that we're drawing now because you've got enough cameras in place like mm. I think there's ways around this of making it better but yeah for us it's frustrating because as you referenced earlier on we weren't bad in the first half. We weren't great, but we weren't bad. And we certainly didn't deserve to be behind. And when you look at the fact that that decision was was not made, was was incorrect, how can you not be frustrated? And that sets the tone, doesn't it, for what's to come after the break? Yeah. The, the first half, I mean, there were a couple of half chances. The Havertz header, which was tipped over the bar. There was Eddie Nketiah's chance late in the first half that that he put over. And I have to say, like a 1-0 down going into the break, I wasn't especially concerned. Like, I, I didn't think we were playing brilliantly, but it's not as if West Ham were peppering the goal. It's not as if Ramsdale had a whole load of saves to make. And I was thinking, well, you know, we keep going. If we up it a bit in the second half, then I think the goals will come. You know, if you just keep knocking on the door, chances are you'll get the goals. Um West Ham, though, came out in that second half and immediately set the tone for what was to follow. Uh, whether that was like a halftime rocket from David Moyes or, you know, part of their game plan or just the way it went. There was a moment, I think, very early on when Lucas Paqueta just flew past Jorginho, flew past a couple of defenders, played in Jared Bone. Uh, Ramsdale had to make a very good save. Ben White got it clear. Um, but that, unfortunately was the tale of of the second half where West Ham were on it and Arsenal were just that one step, two steps off it. Yeah, absolutely. I think when you're away from home and you're in an atmosphere like that, and listen, the the London Stadium, I've been there a fair few times, you know, it it does get criticised for being not a football ground, an Olympic stadium and all Mm. the rest of it. And when West Ham are playing badly and everybody's on their backs, it does feel like a really toxic place. But equally, when you've got nearly 60,000 people in there all supporting West Ham, it is a difficult place to cope in. Uh, We've seen that, particularly in their European campaigns over recent seasons. And that goal sort of in the first half and the fact that West Ham started the second period, as you mentioned, with a lot of energy, a lot of uh, intensity, a lot of directness, it, it got everybody going. And I felt like Arsenal had their backs to the wall at the start of the second half. And you just needed to manage that first 10, 15 minutes of that period and get a foothold in the game and then gradually play your way back into it and put yourself in a position Mm. where you're back in it and you've still got a chance. And we just let it get away from us. And, um, you know, the second goal for me uh, was a really, really disappointing one to concede. Just the simplicity of it, you know, direct ball over the top, question marks over Zinchenko's defensive work we've we've always had those question marks I think I don't think anyone should be surprised by it but even the way Mohamed Kudus was able to kind of cut in with that one touch and still get the shot off without really being closed down Mm. was was concerning wasn't it it was yeah I mean it was 
was it Aguard who t- who took the ball forward and just sort of launched a diagonal towards the uh, towards the penalty box? Look, it can happen as a fullback; the ball goes over your head, but you you can't get diddled the way Zinchenko did there. And I, I don't quite understand what Gabriel was doing in uh, in attempting to. I don't think he was even attempting to block the shot. I think he was just trying to. He didn't even make himself big. He sort of hunkered down and put his arms behind his back and stuck his leg out. The ball goes through his legs. I've seen people talk about Aaron Ramsdale for this goal. You know, I don't really see this as a a goalkeeping error. I think when the ball goes through a defender's legs like that without a real proper challenge, you know, we know that Gabriel is capable of much better than that defensively, you know, when it comes to blocking shots, when it comes to positioning, when it comes to ensuring that shots don't reach the goal, you know, I have a lot more focus on the um, on the two defenders for that one than I do the goalkeeper. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. I think look, Zinchenko isn't the biggest. He isn't naturally a fullback. We could we could say we could argue. I know he's played there for a long time, but it's always been predominantly because of his ability to go into midfield and his technical ability, rather than sort of his defensive instincts or anything like that. I think you know, had that been Takahiro Tomiyasu, just you know, to put it out there, I think that first of all, it's much more difficult to drop a ball over his head because of his sheer stature and size. Mm -hmm. Uh, But secondly, I think he might have sort of backed in towards Kudus as that ball was coming. He might have recognised, judging the flight of the ball, that he wasn't going to win it. So what can I do Mm. to put the man off? What can I do to make it difficult for him to either bring the ball under control or cut back inside? And almost like lean into him. And I, I never felt like Zinchenko had any intention of doing that. He didn't recognize that he was in trouble quick enough and therefore he couldn't deal with it. And as for Gabriel, as you say, you know, I think again, you know, this is someone that was maybe obsessing over the idea of not giving away a penalty because he has his hands behind his back, which restricts his movement. Mm. You know, we always talk about being in a natural position, not extending your body and all the rest of it. And we have a lot of sympathy for defenders when they come out trying to look big and the ball ends up striking the arm. But it almost felt, yeah, a bit half-hearted from Gabriel, which is not what we're used to seeing from him. And that's what makes it, I think, a little bit disappointing. Yeah. Can I ask you just about Zinchenko? Because I found myself during the first half a little bit frustrated with him when we were in possession and when we were on top of the game. Like, we all know he wants to operate in midfield. We know the role he plays. It's not a left-back role. He is the spare man. He does pop up in midfield. There were just moments where I felt the flow to our game was impeded by him demanding the ball in areas where he didn't necessarily need to be. He was literally taking it off the toes of the centre-halves at times. And... I get it. You want to dictate play. You want to try and find the passes and all the rest of it. But I don't think that's necessarily helpful, you know, because you don't create those overloads if he is standing on the toes of his own central defenders. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I've been frustrated with Zinchenko a little bit this season in general. I think at times he has, um, you know, he is obviously gone into that area that he was so effective in last season, but not to the same effect. And I don't know how much of that is down to what Zinchenko's doing, our team in general, and how much of that is down to just people sussing it out, right? It was a big feature of our game last season. And people started over the course of the campaign to look at it and go, well, that's how Arsenal were creating those overloads in the build-up. That's how Arsenal were luring in 
uh, the opposition press and then using his technical ability and, and Partey, who was alongside him, the, the two of them were able to play through that. That would give the ball into the feet of the likes of Odegaard nice and early and he'd have space to carry the ball into. And I actually think the fact that we don't do that as effectively anymore has had an impact on Odegaard this season too. So I think it, it, the machine is just not functioning in the way that it was last season. And we need to find alternative solutions to that. I is, think he tried when he sort of put Partey doing that, didn't he, from the other side in Zinchenko's absence. He tried to change it a little bit. But to me, it's it, it's just not working to the same effect. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not convinced personally that Partey at right bank was anything tactical other than just a way of, um, you know, Gabriel wasn't being picked for whatever reason. So I don't necessarily see that. But I mean, do you think... Look, I'm not taking anything away from Declan Rice because he's been absolutely fantastic since he joined the club. Is there maybe something to the argument that Declan Rice is... Um, the fact that he's in the spotlight as much as he is is because midfield isn't quite functioning the way it should, that he is in our hours of need, if you want to put it like that, standing up, he's being counted, he's got uh, the quality, takes the responsibility and all the rest of it, whereas perhaps... You know, if the midfield trio was functioning in the way that you might like, like Partey hasn't started a game in midfield this season. You know, if that area of the pitch was working the way it would, perhaps Declan Rice wouldn't be or need to be as all action as he is. Yeah, I think for me, um, and I've said this on, on my podcast a few times this season, as much as I love Declan Rice, and I think he was a fantastic signing. And as you say, he's been all action. He's, he's helped us in so many ways. I don't think he's as natural a ball progressor as well as Thomas Partey is in the sense of, I think they do it in different ways. So if you look at the way that Declan Rice progresses the ball, it tends to be by carrying it. He likes to pick it up in deep areas and drive into spaces. Whereas Thomas Partey's first thought is always, can I receive this on the half turn? And if so, I've already looked up and I've decided I'm going to ping it out to Saka or I'm going to play it through the lines to Odegaard or I'm going to go out to the left to Martinelli. And I think... Because of that, we're just taking an extra step sometimes in our build-up, which allows people to get back behind the ball and get into shape. And although Declan Rice, as I say, has been fantastic, he's different. And because he's different, it's impacting the way we're progressing the ball through the thirds and, and the speed at which we're doing it. So it's not to criticise him in any way, shape or sure. form. This is a new style of football for him. This is a new club and all the rest of it. But I think people have maybe underestimated the significance of Partey's absence because of how good Declan Rice has looked in terms of being all action and all the rest of it. Yeah. And, and actually the real problem's gone under the radar. The third goal, I mean, Arteta brought on Rice and Tommy Asu um, not long after the second goal and then the third goal went in. Do, do you have sympathy for Aaron Ramsdale? I have to say I felt sorry for him. You know, he's fouled for the first goal, can't do much about the second goal. Third goal, it looks like he's behind the shot. And at the last second, it takes a, a clip off Kivior's thigh, changes the trajectory of it. He gets a hand to it. It looks bad for a goalkeeper when you get that much on the ball, but it still goes in. But, you know, that was a, a pretty powerful shot from Jared Bowen and it, it, it took a deflection very close to to Ramsdale. I have to say, I felt a, a little bit sorry for him. Again, whether we should have closed Bowen down a little quicker, probably. Um, but it doesn't look good for the goalkeeper, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because, you know, he didn't do a lot wrong. Yeah, agreed. And I think we're in this place now, aren't we, where everything that Ramsdale does, everything that David Raya does is, is put under the microscope because of this ongoing conversation around who should be the number one, uh, the number one, I beg your pardon. 
for Ramsdale yesterday, as you say, yeah, look, the, the first one, he can't do much about it. He's fouled, obviously. Uh, and the third one takes that wicked deflection, which at first glance doesn't look that bad. I remember sort of watching it in real time and thinking, oh, you know, he's got to do better there. But then when I watch it back and you see he's sort of committed to putting his arm up and it's kind of gone in off his face, I think, in the end, sort of the way it hits him. And you could just see by his reaction that he, he really felt disappointed and that he was desperate to make a, a sort of point uh, by coming in yesterday and performing. And it just didn't happen for whatever reason. But uh, it has Arteta created this himself by the fact that he brought Raya in because, you know, for a long time, people have, have sort of brought up this question. And I've always said, well, if you replace Matt Turner with David Raya, actually you've improved the goalkeeping department and you deserve credit for wanting to do that and then being able to carry it out. But at the same time, the, the uncertainty and the scrutiny that is placed on that position has, I think, at times had a negative impact with regards to the way we as fans and the media assess those guys' individual performance, which can create narratives that can sometimes be unhelpful. I mean, do you think it's affected both goalkeepers? I, mean, I know we're not really here to talk about Raya because he wasn't there last night, he wasn't on the bench. But, you know, it, is pressure... I mean, it's unavoidable, isn't it, when you're at a big football club and when you're playing at this level of the game, it's unavoidable. You've got to deal with pressure. You've got to be able to deal with pressure. But there's sort of pressure and then there's a sort of sense of, um, you know, where you stand within a football club or within the uh, the thoughts of a manager. Like for Ramsdale, he must be thinking, well, what did I really do wrong here? What What happened? Because they just gave me a new contract and now... You know, I'm I'm I feel like I'm done here. Raya perhaps in time will come to feel a bit more secure in the number one position, but when he's first coming into the team, he's gonna be thinking, Well, I've got to keep performing, I've got to keep doing what the manager wants me to do. And um, you know, he's had his ups and downs a little bit as well. He had a very uneventful game against Sheffield United, which is good. Um uh, as much down to Sheffield United as as David Raya. But, you know, is that environment or fostering that kind of environment, a way to get the very best out of the best guy and he who falls by the wayside falls by the wayside? Or, you know, is there a, maybe a different way or, or, or a more um, inclusive way of dealing with that situation? It's difficult to say, isn't it? Because the, the thing that Mikel Arteta has to his advantage that we don't is he watches them every day in training. So, you know, some of his decisions will be based on that as well, I'm sure. And we don't have access to that. So we will judge it purely on what we see on a match day. Um, I've felt a little bit for uh, for Raya, I beg your pardon, because there's so much clamour for Ramsdale to play. And there's a lot of love towards Ramsdale, understandably from the fans because of the impact he's had since he arrived at the club. But I remember being away at Lons and sort of Ramsdale coming over to warm up, getting a stand innovation from the away end, Raya coming over, not really getting that much of a response. It was the same in Seville. And I've noticed that on a few occasions. And I just think, how must David Raya be feeling? You know, there must be a, a, an element of, well, the manager's picked me. I'm the one that's playing yet you guys are all obsessing over what Aaron Ramsdale does. So I think for him, there's probably a bit of a, mm. a sort of mental issue there as well. So I don't think the environment generally is producing what it was supposed to, which was two guys performing at elite levels. I think instead what we've got today is two goalkeepers that are so petrified of making a mistake that actually they're overthinking things and overcomplicating things 
and and you know that whatever happens, the narrative for the following week is going to be around who should play the next time. So I understand the theory behind the competition, but I don't think it's quite worked like that in the reality, which is a shame. What did you make of the final stages of the game? Because when we went to 3-0 down, Mikel Arteta responded with subs. Bakayo Saka came on. Gabriel Martinelli came on. At that point, it's 3-0. West Ham can sit in a low block. They can uh, be defensively disciplined and organized in the way that David Moyes' teams usually are. You know, um, It didn't make a huge amount of difference. Martin Odegaard came on then uh, for Eddie, I think, uh, was the final change. In the end, there was a consolation goal, but it was like in the 95th minute, maybe West Ham at that point were just like, yeah, this is one. We don't have to keep our concentration as high. So were you, did it worry you that players like Saka Martinelli uh, couldn't influence the game at that point, having been brought on? Or was that merely just a a consequence of the game state as much as anything that those guys thrive when maybe we can put them in behind and there was no way we were getting in behind a West Ham defence who were hanging on to a uh, a 3-0 lead. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. Game state is the key there. Um, the game's done. Uh, the game's gotten away from you. Um, and I understand that bringing those guys on maybe is partly because you want to get a bit of minutes um, under their belts, especially for maybe Odegaard um, who didn't feature at the weekend. But at the same time, I just think when the game states that way, you kind of just got to accept that they're not going to have any influence. And that's why it felt like an unnecessary risk to me. You mean like bringing them on at that point? It was just like, well, you know, why bother? Do do you not as a manager have to at least be seen to say, well, we're 3-0 down. This is not good. Chances are we're not going to turn this around, but I have to give it a go. We can't. We can't put out into the world a perception of Arsenal that at 3-0 down, we're just going to kind of wave the white flag and see out the rest of the game. I mean, I know what you're saying. And I was a bit like, oh, you know, when, when the injury time went up and it was, what, six minutes, something like that, I was just like, ah, ref, come on, just blow it up before someone stands on Saka's ankle or Martinelli does, <laughs> you know, gets another kick or whatever it was. But I, I, I sort of understand it from how you want to be perceived as a, as a football club. I agree with that in the sense of, you know, there's supporters that have paid their money to be there and you're almost shortchanging them, right? Mm. You're not seen to be trying to turn the course of events, no matter how unlikely it seems that you'll be able to do that. But at the same time, I just think the message was already put out based on the team that he selected, in my opinion. At that point, I realized that despite what Mikel Arteta had said in the press conference, which he was never going to admit, was he? Newcastle (laughs) was the priority. And... I actually had made peace with that at that point in the game. I I Mm. thought to myself, well, you know, it's done at 3-0. You're not going to turn it around now. I don't want you to take any unnecessary risks with players who, let's be honest, have been carrying knocks. Um, You know, we lost uh, Martin Odegaard due to that hip injury that he had. We'd lost um, Martinelli a few weeks prior and he just sort of came back into the picture for the Manchester City game. And, you know, Bukayo Saka has struggled all season with sort of staying fit and... Mm shaking off knock so there was a a part of me that thought just let it go um and you know i wouldn't have been personally too disappointed if he wasn't seen to be trying to turn the course of events but yeah i understand what you're saying i just think that the the risk factor there outweighs the, the point of trying to put the right message out sure at that at that stage sure like he's you know if something happened to Saka or martinelli he's going to get absolutely slaughtered for it i mean i get that but 
you know, I, I said this before, I really do think that, that managers and players think about games and the, the, that risk of injury, etc. They think about it very differently than we do as fans. And, yeah. you know, perhaps as Arsenal fans in particular, we've been traumatized by a few incidents down the years where, you know, common sense might be uh, the right approach. Then again, they showed common sense, didn't they, with Thomas Partey um, for the Chelsea game. We won't use him against Chelsea. We'll keep him for Sevilla. And then he gets injured in training. So, you know, these things these things can happen. Let me ask you um, about Kai Havertz. He is discussion point, a talking point. There's no escaping that. I don't think it should be uh, something that people just ignore because you spend a lot of money on a player. You expect certain things from them. You know, it's still relatively early in his Arsenal career, but to what extent are you concerned about uh, not so much his form? Because form can fluctuate. Players can find form and they come and go. But his just his fit, his ability to drift through games, not doing anything terribly, but not doing anything particularly well, not contributing from an attacking perspective. I had a quick look at the stats this morning. He's had nine shots in the Premier League so far this season. Three of those were blocked. Six of those were off target. He's had one shot on target. That is the the goal against Bournemouth, the penalty that he scored, scored it well, taking nothing away from him. But when we talked earlier on about change, about, you know, seeing these fringe players come in and take chances. And look, I don't think Havertz was any worse than Trossard last night or Nelson or Eddie Nketiah or, or Fabio Vieira, but there is a there's a difference because of the price tag, because of where he came from, because of all, all of those things that he has to contend with. And Mikel Arteta knows that and Edu knows that. And it does make it a talking point. To, to what extent are you concerned about Kai Havertz? Is it a question of, well, let's, you know, just wait and see and properly judge him in six months or, or are sort of little alarm bells ringing with you? There are little alarm bells. I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't. And, you know, a lot of that is down to the price and, and the fact that we were able to or, or willing to invest that kind of money. And I, I still don't know that we know as a football club where he fits in exactly. In theory, the idea of having somebody like Kai Havertz in the left eight position made sense going into the season because if you look at how many times Granit Xhaka got forward last season in that area, arrived at the far post, and then you think about the fact that his instincts weren't necessarily there in terms of being on par with an attacker to maybe follow up those situations and then convert those situations, it, it made a lot of sense to me. And this is a player in Kai Havertz that we've looked at for years and gone, What's his best position? And that was a debate during his time at Chelsea. Mm. From what I've seen so far of Kai Havertz in an Arsenal shirt, and I'm going to discard everything that went on before that because it's irrelevant, I think, in this discussion because we're talking about the context of Kai Havertz in this team. Mm -hmm. How does he fit? I think for me, Kai Havertz's best performances, best cameo appearances have all come when he's been utilised as a striker. I think for me... One of the, the standout bits of his game is his ability to hold the ball up, is his ability to use his big frame. Um, and I didn't think that that was really Kai Havertz's game, actually, before he signed for us. But he does seem to have this ability to sort of back into people, to hold it up, to bring others in the game. I think he's an intelligent player. 
And I think on a night like last night where we were playing the ball forward up to Eddie and Ketia at times and it just wasn't sticking, and we've seen that with Nketiah, I think, in, in other matches as well. Mm. I think we, we could have done with somebody like that. So I look at him now and think your best performances for Arsenal are going to come if we use you as a rotational attacker rather than a midfielder because the balance in midfield with him in it is just off. It, it just isn't working. And I don't attribute that solely down to him. We talked about relationships and balance. I think all of that is so important. Maybe with Partey and Rice in midfield, it can be him or Odegaard, but I don't think you can have him and Odegaard and then put all the pressure on Rice, for example, to be the six or ask Jorginho to be the six. I think the balance is just off in comparison to what we had last season. So I am concerned, but I also think a lot of this is down to the way he's being utilised. And I don't think that we've got it quite right yet. What, what do you think the plan was? What do you think the, the idea was when they said, right, let's get Kai Havertz, who's been underwhelming at Chelsea? who's going to cost quite a lot of money, in fairness. Um, you know, maybe in the grand scheme of things, you know, it, it's not as expensive as it as it looks because other players are going for ridiculous amounts of money. But still, £65 million is a very significant outlay for a club like Arsenal. Is he our second most expensive player ever or third? Maybe behind um, uh, Nicolas Pepe. Um, do you think the plan was for him to slot into that Granite Xhaka role rather than be sort of versatile, rotational attacker, somebody who could give you a different option up front in the final 20 minutes. And, I, you know, I think you're you're onto something there. I think that 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 is probably where he has been most effective, although our sample size is extremely small. You know, yeah. we saw him there in the Community Shield. He's seen out a couple of games there. I don't think he started a game there. Um, Eddie Nketiah starts up front when Gabriel Jesus is not there. So it, it it suggests to me that the plan was for him to be that left eight. And if he is struggling and continuing to struggle in that position, while we have injury problems with Thomas Partey, which we'll talk about now in a second, does that not leave Arsenal with a fairly significant problem in that position? Yeah, I think I think the plan was... I think a lot of the reason that Arsenal were willing to pay what they paid for Kai Havertz was because in Mikel Arteta's mind, he could help them address not just one issue, but a number of issues. So I think he was seen as someone that can be a, a rotational piece in the attack if needs be. And he was someone that I think they looked at and thought he could play as a left eight in certain games, in certain game states against certain opposition. So I don't think it was sign him and he's solely going to be a left eight. And now we're at a point where that's not working. So we're trying different things. I think the idea of his versatility um, being of use to us was was right there from the beginning. And I think that Thomas Partey's fitness problems, which as you say, we're going to come on to, have played a big part in why he's played so much in the midfield as opposed mm. to being utilised in other areas. But yeah, I, you know, Mikel Arteta spoke a lot in the summer, didn't he? About versatility, about unpredictability, about the need to try and catch people off guard at times and the need to be able to utilise people in different positions. So I don't believe that he signed him with the sole intention of him playing as a left eight. I think versatility was at the top of the the list when it came to sort of trying to convince the club to, mm. to outlay the money that they did. 
Well, you know, yeah, like uh, like I asked you, I mean, I do have some concerns at this point about, you know, wh- where he fits and what exactly he is going to bring to this team. And, you know, I, I will be quite happy to sit here and eat a, a big slice of humble pie uh, down the line if he, you know, finds his form and finds some goal-scoring form. But I, I don't think it's unreasonable, even after sh- uh, such a, a relatively short period of time, to expect a little bit more from... Um, a player of his experience and a player uh, who did cost 65 million pounds like players don't dictate their price tags but price tags tell you to some extent you know what you should expect from a player and um, I don't think we're don't think we're getting that uh, at the moment unfortunately we did mention briefly Thomas Partey another injury you know got injured at the end of August came back played a little bit in the Man City game, went away with Ghana, played a bit for them during the international break, got injured, it's going to be gone again. Are we at a point now with Thomas Partey where, you know, at executive level, the conversation needs to be, let's get what we can out of him for the rest of this season, but let's not be in a position next season where a player of his importance and quality just is not available. Because I think... When they thought about the team this season, when they thought about big games, you know, like Chelsea away, like Manchester City, like Newcastle away on Saturday, I'm almost certain that the midfield three is set in stone for those and it's Partey, Rice, Odegaard. And it just hasn't happened and it's not going to happen until, well, I don't know. We don't know. He could be out for three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and then who knows how long he'll last again. So, you know, have we had enough evidence at this point that the decision to sort of move on, if you like, from Thomas Partey or or, or lessen his importance in this team has to be made? Yeah, I, th- I think we are at that point. I think that you're right about the, the go-to midfield and what it would have been in a lot of those games. And, you know, just to quickly circle back to the Havertz point, you know, th- there would be games where maybe that wasn't the idea. You wouldn't play Partey and Rice and you'd use Havertz in, in one of those games, depending on the game state, depending on the opponents, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But with Thomas Partey, we are at this point now where we need to seriously consider um, what we do with him. Because there's no doubt about it, when he's fit, when he's firing... He's one of the best in world football in his position. And the thing that makes him so difficult to replace, I think, is that he's got a really unique skill set for a defensive midfielder. You know, I say defensive, he sits in a deep position. He can bring you the defensive side of the game. You know, he worked under Diego Simeone, he understands positioning, he reads the game excellently. But I I talked about it earlier, his progressive passing is something that you don't find in every single defensive midfielder. And when you build a team around someone like that and they become such a key cog in your machine and then you're without them, you need someone to come in and bring you that same skill set. And we just don't have that. To to put into context how concerned I am about this and, and how concerned I think Arsenal should be, we are one injury away from being in the same position that we were in last season in midfield having spent a hundred million pounds on Declan Rice. So we've invested a hundred million pounds into our midfield and we've still only got one world-class sort of deep lying midfield player. And if that player goes down injured and, and touch wood that that doesn't happen to Declan Rice, we're back to having to cope without that profile of player. And it's a problem. It's a big, big problem. And a lot of us attributed Arsenal's fall off last season to, to a number of key injuries of, of which Thomas Partey was one of them. So you have to be concerned. And look, if you can get a fee for him next summer, then do it. But the, the the identification of the next person needs to be right. 
and you know we've we've brought in a couple of younger players over the years that we thought could be the understudy to Thomas Partey, Lokonga being one of them. Mm. That isn't the solution. We need to identify the solution, and I think we need to start putting the pieces in place to to fix that problem before it really really costs us again. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of football to come between now and the time that Thomas Partey will be back, and um, you know, if they're thinking about doing something in January, I wouldn't be averse to that at all. You know, we're not far away from a midfield trio of. Of Jorginho Elneny Odegaard. That's what I mean. A, and, you know. and, and when you think that you've spent £100 million pounds yeah. plus the 65 on Havertz mm. because he's being utilised in that position that Fabio Vieira is a part of that pack of players and you paid £35 million for him, that's worrying to be in that position. So yeah. that's why I think we're at a place now where, listen, I love Thomas Partey as much as the next person. I think there are very few. There's, the only person in the Premier League I'd take ahead of him is Rodri. And that says a lot because Rodri's a phenomenal player. So that's how good he is. But if you're not available, mm. none of that means anything, does it? It doesn't. Um, just very finally, another injury. Um, well, Gabriel Jesus, uh, you know, the, I'm not sure that that's a discussion we need to have today. Uh, some reports he could be out until December. We'll, we'll wait and see. But we all understand how... Uh, how important he can be, particularly in the Champions League. Um, but we do have more options, I think, in in uh, the forward positions than uh, perhaps we do at the base of midfield. But Emile Smith-Rowe picking up a knee injury, which Mikel Arteta said is a big worry. He's going to be out for weeks, he said, but we don't quite know the extent of that. It's a bit sad, isn't it? The timing of that after what happened in last season, and over the last couple of weeks, he appears to have been putting himself back in contention a bit, obviously working hard on the training ground, putting himself in the manager's thoughts. He came on in one of the Champions League games early, started at the weekend. You know, he's beginning to to get minutes under his belt. Um, and you need those minutes to be able to find the form that we want to see from him. And another injury, I you know, I don't know the extent of it at this point, and maybe we'll find out um uh, in due course, but it, it's just sad for Smith Rowe, whose career, uh, you know, has been so difficult over the last eighteen months or so. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of Emil Smith Rowe, and I remember sort of when him and Bukayo Saka were sort of both breaking through. You know, I used to look at Smith Rowe and think, you know, he doesn't seem as as sort of quick or as you know as robust physically as Bukayo Saka, but my God, he's as talented. I genuinely thought that at the time. And I still do think that a fully fit Emil Smith-Rowe has got this amazing football intelligence. He's got this ability to ghost into spaces undetected. There was a period where he was scoring a lot of goals for us as well. I think he's a, a really, really great footballer. But again, it's, it's similar to the Partey situation, right? If you're not fit and you can't stay available, then at some point, if you want to be competing at the very top, that ruthlessness needs to kick in from not just the manager, but from the club as well. You know, there, there's been times where we've had supposedly, according to reports, offers of 30, 35, 40 million pounds on the table. And we might get to a point sooner rather than later where you have to consider that. And that kills me to say it because he got the 10 shirt and he got the contract. And yeah. I was as excited as the next person about that. But it just hasn't really worked out. And, you know, it, it's kind of hard here because, you know, Arteta can, can say that it's really sad for him and, you know, have that sympathy. But... Arteta has also not really given him a look in um, at times when, you know, maybe there was a case that he could have had a chance. You know, he's 
it, it looked like when he came back, he would sort of slot back into the pecking order ahead of Fabio Vieira because he didn't have a great season last season. And that didn't happen, did it, at the start of their campaign? Now, you, you might put that down to Smith Rowe's fitness and him needing to prove himself on that front. But to me, it's incredibly sad. I wish him a speedy recovery. I hope it's not serious um, because I really do think this is a player that can help Arsenal in the years to come. But if he's not fit, mm. then that becomes irrelevant, doesn't it? All right. Well, look, let's keep fingers crossed that it's uh, it's not too serious. It is just a couple of weeks and, and we can see him back sooner rather than later. We better leave it there. But for now, Harry, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much indeed to Harry. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Harry Simiou, at Harry Simiou. And of course, you can catch him on the Chronicles of Gooner podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Right, I am going to leave it there for this week's show. Of course, we do have a very big game against Newcastle on Saturday evening. There will be plenty to talk about with regards to that fixture in our preview podcast, which we will have for you over on Patreon. You can sign up right now, patreon.com forward slash arsblog. It's about a fiver a month, and you get access to all of our exclusive content over there. Mikel Arteta will meet the press tomorrow morning. We'll get team news. We'll talk about possible team permutations. How do we fill that left eight position, for example? That's a discussion we'll have on our preview podcast, myself and Lewis Ambrose. So please do join us for that. In the meantime, take it easy, folks. Thank you so much, as always, for being here. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we will catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye.
don't accept this fucking standards. I'm telling you, I don't accept this. When I lose a duet, I'm upset. When I lose the Mozart again, I'm upset. I'm upset. Fucking shit. I'm upset. Fucking shit. Shit. I'm upset. Fucking shit. No. I'm upset. Fucking shit. No. 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 I'm upset. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.